We're continuing our investigation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our study leader, Dave Wordson, begins today with a review of what we've learned so far in the chapter. So it's a great time for all of us to get caught up. And then he introduces a strange verse about baptism for the dead. Let's see if we can discover what Paul is getting at. The essence of 1 Corinthians 15 verses 29 through 34 is Paul is bringing to an end his discussion concerning the resurrection. He's raised the issue that in the Corinthian church they have not doubted the resurrection of Christ. I think it's easy to misinterpret 1 Corinthians 15 and think that the church was doubting the reality of Christ's resurrection. They were not. What they were doubting was the reality of their own resurrection. They were questioning whether or not they themselves and also their loved ones that had gone on to be with the Lord would ever be resurrected themselves. The Apostle Paul answers that question by pointing out that if they don't believe in the resurrection, if they're going to be consistent, then eventually they're going to have to come to the position that not even Christ is risen from the dead. And then he pushes that logic to its extremity. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then our faith is vain. There's no reason in being here. His whole life as an, as an apostle is a lie. That instead of the apostles being the source of living water under the power of the Holy Spirit, they have become the source of polluted, poisonous streams. In the middle of that argument, as he pushes this terrible logic, there is no resurrection, therefore Christ is not risen from the dead, in our passage, he stopped and said, but, but, now Christ is resurrected from the dead. And he drove home that marvelous message of conviction, that the apostolic witness is true, that you can build your life on the reality that Christ is alive. When we get down to verse 29, the Apostle Paul uses a series of arguments from the, first of all, from the practice of the Corinthian church themselves, then from his own life, and then he concludes this discussion of is there a resurrection from the dead with a strong admonition for us to live a moral life. So if you look at verse 29, Paul begins like this. Now, if there is no resurrection, the now signals a new departure in Paul's argument. He's going to draw from the experience of the Corinthians first of all. Now, if there is no resurrection from the dead, what will those do? What will those in your group, in the Corinthian group, do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now that little simple verse has raised probably more discussion than any other verse in the book of 1 Corinthians. What makes it very obscure is that it's a simple phrase. What will those do who are being baptized for the dead? Those who are baptized for the dead sounds like a very straightforward statement, but it's troubling. Now, I want to make something very clear before I share a little bit about what I think about these verses. Paul's point is clear. The point that he's trying to make is exceedingly clear, and that is it. This practice, whatever it is that the Corinthians were doing, is totally inconsistent with the reality that there is no resurrection. Because if there's no resurrection, it's foolish, it's empty 
to be baptized for the dead because the dead would be exactly that, dead, 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 and you couldn't do anything for them. You couldn't do anything that would benefit them. It wouldn't make any difference what practice they were doing. So Paul's point is clear. Whatever the Corinthians are doing, it's totally inconsistent with the small number within the Corinthian church who are teaching there is no resurrection from the dead. So that's the point that Paul is making. But the question that we have today is a question that wasn't even raised in the Corinthian church. Because as soon as Paul mentioned those who are baptized for the dead, the Corinthians knew exactly what the practice was. It was something that took place sometime in their group. They knew what was going on. But from the perspective of 2,000 years, it's a little bit hard for us to put it together. And that's why there's over 200 explanations of what this verse means. I think we can begin by just trying to get at the literal, most normal meaning of the words. First of all, in Pauline writing, when he, wrote, when he writes, those who are baptized, the normal use of that phrase in Corinthians, like beginning with chapter 1, Paul says, I didn't baptize any of you. Oh yes, I think I baptized the house of Stephanus and a few others. That phrase in Corinthians, those who are baptized, the normal way of taking that would be believers because Paul never envisions an unbeliever being baptized. Baptism is never a mechanical thing. It's never just a religious rite that almost has a flavor of magic to it. It always involves believers. Those who are baptized in Paul's thinking would always involve believers. Okay? So the normal way to take those words would be living believers who are being baptized. In this case, it would be water baptism. Now the next phrase, for the dead. The normal way of taking that phrase would have to do with some kind of a vicarious practice. For the dead would mean somehow those who are baptized are doing something which benefits the dead. We have the same preposition used in the phrase we studied very carefully, Christ died for our sins. The for in that verse is the same as the for here, those who are baptized for the dead. And I showed you then, it's a very general preposition, concerning sin. Christ died concerning sin in order to meet our need. But there's a flavor in that, in that preposition of, in the place of, or some kind of a substitution. In other words, if I didn't have all the paraphernalia around this verse and the troubling idea of someone being baptized as a substitute for someone else, if that wasn't such a troubling idea, we would just take that, yeah, that's what it means. In other words, the most normal, the most everyday way, if you read this verse, would be, those who are baptized are believers who somehow are taking the place of the dead. Now what makes that troubling is, for example, the Mormons have developed a whole major religious practice on that belief, on this obscure verse. In fact, when I was over in Poland, the Mormons had been making tremendous inroads in that country. And one of the kids asked me, what about this verse? You know, Dave, what does this verse mean? And I had to say, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure what it means. But one thing I am sure about is that it would be very unbiblical to elevate it to a very high priority practice in the church. Because Paul mentions it nowhere else. 
It's never mentioned again. In this passage, it's very obscure. It's even difficult to figure out what in the world they were doing. And in the Mormon belief, it's the idea that somehow I can be baptized, I can go through a ritual, and it can have eternal significance for those that have gone on. And there's almost a mechanical idea, a work, a performance idea in Mormon theology that I, as a living person, can do something which will meet the need of people that are out there. Now, I know for sure that Paul would disagree with that kind of thinking. Because Paul puts all of his emphasis on your need to be personally justified by faith. To personally make a decision of commitment deep within your personality, which only you can do. It can never be manipulated. It can never be forced. Paul would never in a million years ever teach a group that somebody else could do a mechanical religious act that would somehow have eternal significance for someone else. Because to do so would be to violate the personality of an individual. It would violate the responsibility of decision making within that personality. It would also violate the whole plan of justification that God has given us. So there's a clear indication of where we can look in a modern practice, for example, within the Mormon church, where they've taken a very obscure verse, elevated it to a place of prominence within their teaching, and they've generated a whole theology which is not in accord with the rest of the New Testament. I don't ask you to take my word for that. I challenge you to study it yourself. And one of the roles that I need to play as a pastor teacher and the role of an elder is to be a protector is to protect you from false doctrine. And I want you to know that I will constantly challenge you. Read the text. Read the books. Read them consecutively. Begin in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Read it till the end. You can disagree with me if you can prove it from the text, if we can learn together from the text. Any cult group will never do that. Another thing that I know about baptism is I know that water baptism for Paul was never equated to eternal salvation. I want to remind you, because even in our day, this comes up a great deal. In fact, there are some very precious people that believe that in order to have eternal life, you need to be water baptized. And I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 1 again, if you'll turn to verse 13 of chapter 1. Just to remind you, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified you for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Then Paul says this, I'm thankful that in reality I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Now I want you to stop and consider, if water baptism is necessary for salvation, if it's that big a deal in the Apostle Paul's thinking, in other words, it's, the, it's one of the ingredients of eternal life. I want you to think about the incredible nature of an apostle who committed his life to proclaiming the good news about how people could have eternal life, and he's scratching his head. He doesn't even know who he baptized in Corinth. If I led someone to the Lord, I remember it. If I had the precious privilege of being used by the Spirit 
to personally introduce them to the saving message of Christ, I don't forget it. And Paul didn't forget it either because he could list long, long reams of lists of people's names that he had contact with, that he loved dearly. So what he's telling us is that water baptism for him is not a big deal. It's not necessary for eternal life. In fact, the next verse makes that very clear. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. And the Apostle Paul there sets up a dichotomy. The preaching of the gospel is not equated with water baptism. The preaching of the good news about how you can have eternal life is independent from a religious act of going down underneath the water. Now, Paul is not saying that water baptism is not a beautiful symbol. He's not saying it's a very special proclamation. He's not saying that church families shouldn't be able to rejoice in that beautiful object lesson. Paul would be one of the foremost uh, teachers about the kind of experience that we've had in our own group where members of our family have been able to publicly declare their faith. But I believe for Paul, it was always related to the reality of a person's faith. And the external act of water baptism was an object lesson. Now, I want you to hold on to that idea of an object lesson and also an opportunity of proclamation. Because I think it's those ideas. I think if we go back and ask ourselves, what does Paul think about when he talks about those who are baptized? And he thinks about a person who is able to make a proclamation to fellow believers and also to unbelievers about a reality in their life. Now we add the phrase, for the dead. I think what Paul is saying is this. Evidently, some believers had died in the Corinthian church. F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, suggests maybe there was a plague or something. So some people came to know Christ, but before they were able to be baptized, they died. Paul is saying they're in heaven because of their faith in Christ, because Paul would never make water baptism equal eternal life. The thief on the cross, Jesus said, today I'll be with you in paradise. So Paul would believe that very strongly. But also, water baptism is an opportunity for proclamation. It's an opportunity to make a, a living, internal faith visible so people can see it. So these dead believers who have gone on to be with the Lord, who never had the opportunity of making that proclamation, possibly some of their loved ones within the group chose to make that proclamation proxy in their place. And because baptism is not that big a deal for Paul, although Paul never makes it a common practice, to him it's really not that big a deal. In fact, I think it's, as you read this, I think the commentators have probably gotten a whole lot more excited about what the Corinthians were doing than Paul would himself. Because in light of what Paul believed about baptism, he wouldn't make that big a deal if a loved one who was a believer wanted to get up before a church family and say, my loved one went home to be with the Lord, and I believe they're with the Lord. And before they went home, they didn't have the opportunity of publicly proclaiming that they were a believer. So I'm going to make that proclamation in their place. And that will be for them, for the dead. 
My loved one knew Christ, had a personal relationship with Christ. I'll make the proclamation on their behalf. And a beautiful thing would happen. What I want you to understand about that, that idea is, it's something you might not think about. But what Paul is bringing out is that the dead are very much alive. The dead have not ceased to exist. In fact, Paul will talk about that Jesus is the Lord of the dead and the living. Now that, you know, that's one of those phrases you read in the Bible and you don't think that much about it. But that means a great deal to me today. And it means a great deal to you. Because if I look around, many of you have had loved ones that have died in Christ. And what Paul is saying is that they haven't ceased to exist. That Christ is their Lord. And Jesus is not the Lord of the dead. Very much like the argument, the Sadducees said there's no resurrection. Jesus said, how could you ever say there's no resurrection? They said, well, we only believe the first five books of the Bible. Jesus said, fine. What about I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they go, big deal. Who cares about a statement like that? And Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So the very simple, straightforward statement, Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was shouting through the centuries that those who die in a personal faith relationship with God are very much still alive, very much alive still living, very much still existing. And there is even a unity between us. They are beyond us, and we're away from them. They've said goodbye for a little while, but it's like the German Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen is a beautiful way to say goodbye to a loved one because it, it implies very strongly it's only for a little while. You see, a believer never says a final goodbye to another believer, never. A great thought. And I know that that's true of this text. Even if I'm wrong considering the specific act of what was happening in the Corinthian church, I know Paul is affirming that there is a unity between the living believers and the dead believers. And that's implied later on in 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of the chapter, about the marvelous coming of Christ when we'll go home to be with him. What Paul is saying is, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then the dead are just dead, and whatever you're doing for their benefit will have no help at all, and it's stupid to do it. But I can hear Paul underneath saying, but he is alive. Christ is alive. Fellow believers have gone home to be with him, and therefore your practice does have a deep significance of expressing the unity between the living and the departed dead in the Lord. Now, the next part of the argument is a little bit easier to handle, okay? If you're confused about that, don't worry. About 98% of the believers are, and I wouldn't go to the stake for what I just told you, except for the unity between the living dead and the believing dead, and also for Paul's thrust, Paul's thrust that the Corinthian practice is totally inconsistent with the idea that some of the people were teaching the group there's no resurrection from the dead. Now let's go on. Paul says next in verse 30, As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He says, I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. 
What Paul is straight stating here is think through the implications of the idea that as an apostle, he offered his life daily as a sacrifice. I want to stress some things, three things under here. First of all, it's Paul's pride. Paul stresses in these verses that his greatest pride is the Corinthians. And I think that's an incredible statement, and I think it's very important. You know what our pride is and what it needs to be? What we really are proud about. What makes us feel high. What makes us rejoice needs to be the growth of fellow believers. The growth of fellow believers. The Apostle Paul is, a, is an incredible example in that area. You see, if you're disillusioned because what you see is powerful religious leaders that are really in it for the buck and really in it for prestige and really in it for what they can get out of it, consider the Apostle Paul because he was true blue and he really cared about me and he cared about you. And something I wish you'd really pray for me, I think that one of the greatest prayers you could pray for me is that my pride would be in what Christ does in each and every one of your lives. And I would pray that for you. You know, I think that the Holy Spirit could produce a very dear, growing group if we started to really be proud about what Christ was doing in the lives of other believers. Now, I want to share this with you. Something that's really a downer in the Christian life is the failures that we have, okay? In fact, I would be willing to wager that there's some of you here today that say, but Dave, look at these believers. And I've been here long enough that I know that there's a lot of problems in this room. There's a lot of difficulties in this room. There's a lot of misunderstandings in this room. In fact, maybe an idea crosses your mind as it does my mind from time to time. Maybe we ought to just get away from this whole group called the believers. Because in business, it seems sometimes unbelievers are a lot more consistent than believers are. Some of you have been wiped out in business by believers, haven't you? And some of you have been involved in churches through the years and something terrible has happened. In fact, maybe terrible scandals took place. I want you to remember, what have we studied about in, the, in 1 Corinthians? Corinth, the Corinthian church had incest in it. Okay, not a good thing. There was a big court case in the local court of Corinth where believers were after each other's necks. They were trying to hang one another in court to get money. Great church, great testimony in Corinth. There were a whole lot of men that weren't having relationships with their wives because their wives were angelic, they thought, within their theology. So instead, they went to the local Corinthian prostitutes. Great testimony. I mean, this church has got problems. Theologically, a major element within the group, there's a real power structure within the Corinthian church that has started to proclaim there is no resurrection from the dead, no bodily resurrection. You've already been raised spiritually and therefore, you don't have anything to look forward to. This life is all there is, and the spiritual enjoyment that you have in Christ is all there is. Now, that's heresy, but there was a major group in the Corinthian church that was teaching that. 
But what I never hear in Corinthians is this. I never hear Paul say, there's immorality, Christ has failed. There is bloodthirsty court cases, Christ has failed. There is false theology, Christ has failed. I never hear Paul say that. What I hear Paul say is, I boast in you. In fact, Paul is even further. You know what Paul says? Paul says, I'm going to the lions for you. You see, when Paul wrote from Asia, when he wrote from the city of Ephesus, he was daily facing death, according to Corinthians. Daily, he was facing that kind of opposition. But he didn't quit. He hung on, and he did it with joy. You say, Dave, how did Paul do that? Because Paul did not look for justice in this life. Paul didn't look for everything to line up. That's the problem that a whole lot of us have. You see, a whole lot of us have the idea, if I raise my kids according to a technique, and all the technique is right, then they'll come out at the end beautiful, well-adjusted adults. Doesn't work out. We do things, but then we remember some things that we didn't do. And then we feel very guilty, and we get very down. We get very depressed. We start to work in a church, and we really put a lot of effort into it, and we really go for it, and we really are working hard. And the very people that we work the hardest with, they flake out. So we get angry. We get discouraged. We want to quit. It's all living by justice. So much work in, so much productivity out. Paul never lived that way. You know what Paul lived by? He lived by grace. You know what grace is? It's the unexpected. It's the thing you would never dream about. It's the miracle that happens. Grace is the eruption of God's kingdom when you least expect it. When I look at Jesus hanging on the cross, it looks to me like disaster. It looks to me like the end. It looks to me like maybe Satan has won. And God says, oh no, he hasn't. I'm erupting my kingdom in the world. I'm doing something you would have never dreamed. And then he explains it to me. And Jonathan can play on the piano about Calvary. And it brings back all those forgiving thoughts and realities that by that terrible event on the Calvary, God paid the price. That's grace. It's unexpected. It's the twist. It's that sudden twist in the story that you never would have dreamed. But it's what gives it meaning to it all. And that's what's going to lift you up. You see, Paul could be in a mob in Corinth, and everyone's yelling around him, and he's okay. His physical life is threatened. And he's saying, Dave, I would be an idiot if this life is all there is. In fact, if this life is all there is, then it's right. Let's just go out and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to be dead. The terrible tragedy of that slogan is we always think we're going to be dead tomorrow when God says you might be dead today. You see, we don't want to say that because that takes all the joy out of it. That's reality. We could be dead today, but grace says, okay, it's okay because you're going to live forevermore. Then Paul concludes with this idea. He says this. Corinthians, wake up. It says, Corinthians, sober up. 
And I think if Paul were here today, he would say, are you sober or are you drunk? He says this, he quotes a famous proverb from Menander, which goes like this, bad company corrupts good character. If you run with the dogs, I'll show you how long I've been in Texas. If you run with the dogs, you're going to get fleas. Notice I didn't say run with the horses, you get fleas, because horses don't have fleas. Right, Pat? All right. If you run with the dogs, you're going to catch fleas. Brothers and sisters, you're not running with the dogs. From the smallest children to the oldest adults that are here, teenagers, college students, there's a lot of imperfection here. A lot of struggle, a lot of problems. But you know what else there's here today? Grace. The eruption of God's kingdom in the human heart that brings the hope of living forever in the eternal kingdom of God. There is one person after another that could stand up and say, Dave, I believe. Christ died for my sins according to the scripture. He rose again the third day according to the scripture. Because he rose again, I will rise again. And therefore, this life is meaningful. And I don't have to live just for the pleasure of my stomach, just for the pleasure of my body. I can live morally. I can live skillfully. I can raise families. I don't care how dark it gets in the world because God's grace is still going to erupt. And there's going to be light in the darkness. And there's going to be hope. And there's going to be meaning because Jesus Christ is alive. And if you run with dogs, if you run with people that say, no, that isn't true, this life is all there is, that's all you have to live for, you're going to catch fleas. And that's why I'm so glad that you're here. Because today is the day that we brush the fleas off, we get our thinking focused again, and I need that and you need that, and we remind one another of the precious truth, the precious truth, this life is not all there is. You see, the Lord does want you to live to get high. You say, wait a minute. And that's one of those statements that a newspaper reporter could pick out and say, man, I look what Wurtzen's teaching, live to get high. You know, the Lord really does want you to live to get high. The problem is most of you don't live to get high enough. You see, the Lord wants us to live to get on high to live a resurrected life, to look forward to being on high forever, of being with Christ, the ultimate highest one in all the universe.